Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we're going to engage with the words from Exodus this morning. Um, as you well know, I read religiously on the triennial division, meaning we read the whole Torah in three years. We read a third of every Torah portion each year, a different third. We're on the third third. But people, there's always, you need the exception that proves the rules. So we are going to start with the third triennial section. But because I was doing Ilana Pardes' work with you, I feel like I don't want to wait till next year um, to uh, share with you some massively radical insights that I had about the the golden calf. So um, I'll close our time together going a little bit backwards from the from the triennial division and going back to a little bit about the Egel Hazahav, the golden calf. Okay, so that's the plan for the morning. So we have a lot to do. Let's jump right in. So I'm going to share my screen. So we're going to look at the uh, actual beginning of the triennial text, the third, third of this week's Torah portion. This is after the, the people have, have had Aaron make them this representation of yod of God. And then they have a massive party and do what you do when you're dancing at the feet of an idol, right? They are mitzacheking, right? We know this word, don't we? Well, yeah, they are playing around. So what does that mean, right? There's, you can imagine feasting and drinking and dancing and all that stuff. And so they are, they've done that. Moshe has come down. God says to Moshe, get down there. Your people are messing up. Moshe says, uh, Scuchime, I believe they are your people, but whatever, that's a whole another (laughs) wonderful scene. And Moshe smashes the tablets because the people have broken the agreement Um, And so he tears up the contract, which makes a lot of sense. And then he goes, this is, and then he makes the people drink. He beats the calf into powder and makes them drink it. Um, Lots of people die. It's a mess. And, um, and now God says to Moshe, um, you know, come back up the mountain, make for yourself tablets. Now Moshe has to make this second set of tablets uh, himself. God made the first ones. Uh, Moshe carves two tablets and goes back up the mountain. So we are at the end of this Parsha where Moshe is on the mountain with God. And we're in the middle of their conversation. So we're going to look at verse 11. We start at 12, but we're going to look at 11. So Yudhe would speak with Moshe face to face as one person speaks to another. And then he would return to the camp, but his attendant, Yoshua Ben-Nun, uh, serving as his deputy, would not stir out of the tent. So we we get this description of Moshe talking to God, Panim El Panim. Um, scholars are always trying to figure out what does this actually mean? Like face to face. How can that be? God doesn't have a face. And we're and we're told if you know, if you you know, we're going to see in a minute, you can't see me and live. So what does this mean? So most people want to translate it as a metaphor, that this is as close as one could get to face-to-face conversation. Moshe is the one who gets closest to that um, with the divine. Or people who want to look at these texts from a very early stage want to suggest, want to suggest that actually God has a face um, and has a body is incorporeal. Um, or is corporeal. So um, lots of arguments, interesting arguments among the scholars. Okay. So we're going to start at verse 12. So Moshe says to Yudhe see, you say to me, lead this people forward, but you've not made known to me whom you will send with me. Further, you've said, I've singled you out by name and you have indeed gained my favor. So Moshe is repeating something God apparently has said to Moshe. We do know that God said, I'll send, right, um, a malach with you, an angel with you. And Moshe's like, okay, you're telling us we're going to need to set out from Mount Sinai, but you've not let me know who the heck is going with us. And you've said, I've singled you out by name. You, God, have said that to me and that I have indeed gained your favor. And now, imna, if so, I have found favor in your eyes. Pray, let me know your ways, that I may know you, 
and continue in your favor. Consider too that this nation is your people. So Moshe has to get the last word in here um, in this argument. <laughs> this people is your people. Vayomar, and this is the back and forth, the Vayomer, 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 right? So the he said, he said, he said, he said. And God said, it just says Vayomer, and he said. So we have to assume this is now God's turn to talk. I will go in the lead and will lighten your burden, says the JPS translation. And he replied, so Moshe presumably replies, unless you go in the lead, do not make us leave this place. All right, so Moshe says, you said we're supposed to go. You kind of implied that somebody was going to go with us. You've not let me know who that is. And so God answers not to worry. I'm going to go with you and lighten your burden. And those of you who studied this with me know that I just love Moshe's response, which is, yeah, well, see that you do. (laughs) So a very, very chutzpah and cheeky Moses, right, saying, okay, well, yeah, if you don't, then you best not make us leave here. For how shall it be known that your people have gained your favor unless you go with us so that we may be distinguished, your people and I, from every people on the face of the earth? Vayomer Adonai, and, and Yudei Vafe says to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have asked, for you have truly gained my favor, and I have singled you out by name. I don't like this singled you out a lot. I don't like that translation a lot. It's ve'eda acha b'shem. I know you by name, God says to Moshe, which is way different if you ask me that I've singled you out. Singled you out and say, okay, you're going to get a special award today, Johnny. Like that, that is not the sense of this. It's ed'eda acha. I know you. And we know that this word is, means an intimate knowledge. In Hebrew, to know someone is, an, is a, about intimacy. So what God is saying is, I'm... I'm close to you. You're close to me. Vayomar. And he said, so now this must be Moshe. et Show me, please, your kavod, your presence, right? Your kavod is your, your concentrated essence, your concentrated presence. Show me, Moshe says. And God answers, <clears throat> I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name Yudhevavhe, and the grace that I grant and the compassion that I show. Vayomer, and he says, but you cannot see my face, for a human being may not see me and live. We get this all over Torah. But but what's interesting is the other places we see this in Torah, it's people see God. And then say, oh, my God, I'm going to die because I saw God. <laughs> and they don't. Right. So we see this lots of places. The one that you know best from studying with me is Hagar. Right. Hagar says somehow I saw God, but I God went on seeing me even after I saw God, like some kind of tangled Hebrew something about I saw God and have gone on seeing, meaning I've gone on living. Other places in the Torah, we see this as well. Um, oh, my gosh, we're going to die because we saw God. I saw God. Okay, so, but here it seems very clear. A human being may not see me and live. Remember the Torah is written over a thousand year period. So it shifts from earlier. I'm reading a book now where the author claims that people did see God. They encountered God and it was something visual for them in the earliest parts of our written Torah. And, um, and that that changes over time to this, right? That, that people can't see God and live. Deuteronomy goes even further and says they saw nothing at Sinai, right? You know, that God was in God's heaven and they hear God. They don't see God, God forbid, because that's not possible for the Deuteronomist. Uh, but, but we do have indications that people had some sort of visual experience and later understood that to be a vision having to do with apprehending in some way the divine. So, lo et panai, a human being cannot see my face, ki lo ha'adam bachai, because a person cannot see me vachai and live. So, a lot of you know that my 
my interpretation of this um, is not that that you necessarily die when you see the face of God. It's that you you can't any longer be an Adam. You can't any longer be human. So it, you can't be an Adam and Chai live an earthling's life if you behold me. So in other words, think of, um, think of your best. Okay. I know I'm going to leave some of you behind here. I apologize in advance. Um, think of your best science fiction movie moment where a human being like in some way ascends and becomes more than human, right? Becomes more than what they were as a, like most mortals and becomes a little something else. And, and in um, Star Trek, there are many species that do this, right? That move from one kind of existence to another plane of existence. Um, in many science fiction shows, this is a theme. And I think this is, the, this is sort of what Torah's hinting at. You, you, something will so profoundly change in you, should you apprehend me, that you won't be an Adam anymore doing this high business, doing this living business. Vayomer, and this is God continuing, because this is Vayomer Adonai, Vayomer Yotevafe. See, there is a place near me. Station yourself on the rock. So Moshe is on the mountain. So here's a place over here, like a flat landing of some kind. I don't know where he was before that. <laughs> so come and be over here on this. And it will be that when my kavod passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and shield you with my hand until I have passed by. One of my favorite scenes of Torah, as many of you know, um, I will right. God's going to cause all of God's goodness and compassion and rachamim to pass by. And when God's kavod passes by, like really is passing by, God is going to protect Moshe from that by placing God's kaf, God's palm over Moshe in the rock. And I will take my hand away, viraita et achorai, and you will see my behind, ufanai lo yerau, but my face, you and actually, this is um, the face is plural. So my face, you won't see. Okay. So behind, I think, means bah- directionally behind. Although I read an interpretation that I'm going to share with you in a little bit that I really like, which is a new a new way for me to understand this text, which I really, I really love this text. Why do I love this text? All right, Bert, you're not allowed to say. People, why do I like this time? What's happening here? You like it because it protects Ellie from you. <laughs> All right, Pam, you're cheating too because you've heard me. <laughs> but at least you remembered what I said. Right. So anyone who has a child or a four-legged child, right, um, or has been around a really tender and loving, wonderful friend. What happens when we are way too much, way too much for somebody to handle, right? Do we just let it all fly? Um, When we're talking about being with four-legged children or human children or a very tender, loving friend, if we're going to sometimes let it all fly, things are going to (laughs) happen that, that change the experience of that other in confronting us in ways that can't be undone. Um, and so I remember telling you the story of, you know, Eliana having a tantrum. She wouldn't let me be in the room with her because she was kicking me and she wouldn't let me touch her and she wouldn't let me talk to her. And like, and I was losing my flipping mind. And so I stood outside her bedroom door. She was trying to open the door to come kick me. And like, I just held the door shut with all of my strength. And in doing so, was protecting Eliana from the fullness of who I was in that moment. Because had she confronted the fullness of who her mother was in that moment, it would have done something to her that I couldn't ever undo, right? 
And I believe that's what God is doing here, but God's not mad, right? God is, God is in this overwhelming place of love an overwhelming place of, of being full of God's own toveness, goodness, right? To V, I will cause all my to V to pass by you. But a human being cannot confront the fullness of divine goodness and compassion is what God says, right? My compassion, my goodness. If you were to actually confront the fullness of that, you could not be an Adam and Chai. You couldn't be both those things anymore. A human being living a human life. And I believe God wants Moshe to live Moshe's human life. Now, some traditions would say, okay, here's the happy ending of that story. God doesn't cover Moshe. Moshe confronts God's goodness and God's grace and God's compassion. Moshe confronts it face to face, full on, and is completely changed. Now is communing with the divine and now goes and builds a monastery on that mountaintop and hung out there the rest of his life, right? Some religious traditions would say that's the happy ending, not I'm going to cover you up and continue to be a human being in your limited human capacity, right? A lot of people would have, peoples would have their story end very differently. This is a very Jewish text. It's a Jewish text that says, you don't get to be other than human right now. And in this body, with this soul and mind and brain and whatever, you are human and that's what you're supposed to be. And there are things that are off limits to you because then you're not living a human life. You're doing something else. And that's not what the God of Israel wants is for us to commune with God and become one with God and hang out with God and apprehend and see things completely differently um, and change to the place that we are no longer living a human life. That is not a Jewish text. Audrey? Um, that sort of reminds me of the movie uh, Shangri-La. Wasn't there something at the end where if they looked back, it would be terrible, it would destroy them? And um, you remember the, the story of Shangri-La? No? Does anyone here remember it? Oh, the uh, where time stops? They, they, go to a, they go to a make-believe uh, uh, world, and uh, they live forever there. And they're beautiful and they're lovely and everything. And one of them tries to leave. I think that's, that's the story. And they say, don't look back. Don't look back. Well, that person, it's like turning to, uh, to salt. He looks back and he's, he's destroyed um, because it was so magnificent, this place. It was so good. It was so beautiful. Right. So, right, uh, uh, artistic representation of exactly what I think this text means. That if you, yeah. if you look and see, God says you know, a certain expression of me, then, then you, you will stop living as a human. Something else will be happening. And that is not what God wants. Right. And of course the story, you know, you're just, as I'm hearing it from you, Audrey is hello. That's Sodom and Gomorrah. That's our text. Don't look back at Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, says God, keep moving forward. And when the, the wife of Lot looks back, she freezes in place. She, be- she becomes a pillar of salt, right? That's our text. That's our story. That's our imagery for what it means when we can't let go of the past, when we can't let go of what's happening over there. If we can't do that and look forward and move forward, by definition, we ossify. You know people like this who can't stop looking back, right? You know, I think of some people who were in our pool this summer, you know, they're men in their 60s talking about playing football and soccer in high school and on 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 about it. And I was like, wow, right? That's still, that's still where they are. That's still where they're living. That's those, that's the heyday, right? That's, and they just went over and over and over and I'm like, for an hour. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, you're in your 60s. If we 
if we look, if we keep looking back, not to remember, but to, to keep our, our gaze that way behind us, we ossify. This is talking about something a little different. Like what, what Audrey said that like something so beautiful, possibly that you don't want to come back to living a human life. Once you get a taste of all of God's goodness and all of God's compassion, it will, first of all, taking a taste of that would be like taking a taste from a fire hydrant, right? Taking a sip from a fire hydrant, I imagine. So taking a sip of that, would you want to go back to, to this? If you have any doubts about it, go turn on CNN right now, <laughs> right? That should cure you, <laughs> right? So... I think that's kind of the point is that this is a very Jewish, very Israelite uh, text um, is that you need to be focused like on living your life, Moses, informed by knowledge of God's goodness and Rahmanus and all of that, but not having your life defined by it. Um, Susan, what were you saying? This is a message I have been unable to convey to my husband. Looking forward is the only option we have, right? And he wants to keep remembering when we could climb mountains. And we we can't climb mountains anymore. But we could go to the National Park if he'd go in a wheelchair. You could go right where it's flat (laughs) and beautiful. You've got to be willing to take that step forward into what life brings you. And that just was a brilliant insight for me. Yeah, there was a there was a famous teacher um, who had been teaching yoga and many other things um, and a a real spiritual teacher who wound up in a wheelchair. Um, And I'm going to mangle it. But, you know, they kind of said to him, like, so what's it like to now be a teacher in a wheelchair and not have the ability, you know, to to teach the way you used to, you know, embodied the way you used to. And he's like, I just don't think of it that way. I am someone who's in a wheelchair. I am a teacher. Like, in other words, he didn't compare it to yeah. what he used to be. He just said, what do you mean? Like, I'm a teacher in a wheelchair. Like, that's that's who I am. And, and there wasn't this need for him to, to think of or talk about what he'd lost, right? And, and compare this new reality to one from the past. He was just like, this is my reality. And, and so I teach from a wheelchair. Like, was it Ram Das? Yes, maybe it was Ram Das. Thank you, Pam. Yes, it was like a big, big, big teacher. Uh, thank you. Now I need to look up yeah, where, yeah. That's, where that interview, you know, where that source is. Because it was a beautiful, beautiful teaching for me on like, because true, like we, we think about what we used to be right? Or what we thought we were going to be or whatever. And like, who decided that? Like, I was like 17 when I decided something. It's like, what did I know? (laughs) Why is that truer, right? Then (laughs) I can decide at next month, what will be 57, right? So in our case, I don't think it's about looking back or forward. I think it's about Moses looking up, right? Got it. You know, people, some people who are so oriented to like the higher plane and the higher level la, 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 that they can't fill their car with gas, right? Do you know people like this who are like so somewhere else? Like they're just really oriented somewhere otherworldly, not this worldly. That's not Jewish. You still have to sweep the floor. Like you still, like there's still laundry to do. Um, you know, that it's not about like orienting our gaze constantly somewhere beyond this human grounded embodied experience. And Melinda. I I feel like this is also provides a certain level of uh, buffer from people who want proof of the divine. Like, no, you can't have that. It would destroy you. Uh, you're just like, that's the human relationship with the divine is you got to take it on faith. Like those are the rules. Nice. And, and I'm just going to, I'm just going to make a friendly amendment. It's not that you have to take it on faith. You've experienced my goodness. You've experienced my compassion, right? So you're going to have to settle for that. You're going to have to settle for the amount of me that you can handle, right? But you can't handle all of me. Right. And I love that, that it's a buffer for people who say, uh, uh-uh, I need, I need to see the whole thing. Then we'll talk. 
about what my relationship to this business is. And it's like, you don't get that because you are a limited human and you sack of water cannot handle, right? The fullness of, of, of my goodness and my compassion. Love that. Love that. Beautiful. Uh, Brenda. Hi. Um, this is so fun. Um, I love the um, show me your presence because um, I mean, isn't that what we all are, you know, it's like, you know, are you here? God, where are you? You know? And, and so those times when you do really feel God's presence, you know, is so wonderful. But if you were actually had the experience of seeing God to the extent that they're talking about, I mean, I wouldn't want to go back to my normal life. My entire existence would be trying to get back to that point. So, and it just is, you know, that staying present and staying in the today is such a challenge as it is. So um, I love this reading. Thank you. Um, And to your point, sometimes we know that the divine is working in our lives and his presence, you know, when we have a really deep, amazing encounter with another human being and we're like, Oh man, like this is, there's a touch of something, something gaudy is going on here. Um, But I think the other part of this text is that most often, I think, where do we see that God has been, that the divine has been working in our lives? Ahorai. You see it after I've passed right? You see, you see God's wake, if you will, right? We, we say, wow, had I only known, right? I didn't know it at the time, but I wouldn't be here if I hadn't have made that phone call or right. If I hadn't have found that address in an old purse, I was cleaning out and we look back and understand the universe moving in our private lives in a way that feels really, I was going to say spooky, but in a good way, right? right? That it's, it's my achorai. It's, it's, you will see my afterwards. That's where you'll, that's where you humans see me. That's where you can see me and live a human life is after I've meddled in your world, (laughs) right? After I've manifested in your choices, Right after I have manifested in your being you in in new and challenging and sometimes daring, sometimes just deeply loving, sometimes really challenging ways that then you see, you see me. That's how you can see me, you humans, not really in the moment completely. Judith? Uh, oh, can I make a quick comment? There used to be in I don't know, the 70s, I think it was, where you'd see a picture and you'd think that that was the whole thing. And then they would pull back and then you would see that it was just like a little patch on the donkey's bottom, you know. And it just is so much of that, you know, where I have to remind myself I'm not seeing the whole picture. I'm just seeing a pimple on the donkey's butt, you know. So good reminder. Thank you. Lovely, Brenda. I will think of that next time I'm in synagogue. Yes, thank you for that lovely image. Thank you. <laughs> Judah. Two things. One, I think your concept of God as a verb as opposed to a noun really helps with this dilemma of not being able to see God's face. It's not seeing God's face. It's not defining God specifically. It's your plan of action. I think that has changed my life completely since you brought up that idea makes so much difference. And secondly, in yoga, which I know you love doing, and so do I, there are a few rules. One, you don't ever compare yourself to what you used to be able to do, or what your neighbor is doing, or what you think you ought to be able to do. You do the best you can. So looking backward at what's missing, does you no good at all in your future and progressing? It's always about moving ahead. Right. And, and even it's what I could do yesterday or what I might be able to do tomorrow. Right. Maybe I'll feel looser in my hips tomorrow. It doesn't right. matter. These are the hamstrings you have today, honey. So right. like, get on your mat, show up and deal with the hamstrings you have. Right. Today. <laughs> right. right. Dana, the dancer. Well, yes, I was just reflecting on this idea of looking back. It feels like it's a very human thing to look back, reflection. 
you know, maybe you, we're not, it's not a good idea to dwell in it, but it's like automatic. I mean, don't we do that every time we, you know, light Shabbat candles and remember what we did when we were younger and what we're trying to move forward. So this not looking back, I, I mean, it's just part of your thinking process, you know, and then I thought about someone at the end of their life, uh, maybe not seeing God, but feeling God's presence in a different way. I don't know if you wanted to comment on that, you know, in this process at the yeah. end of life. I mean, you, at the end of life, it's, yeah, I, I do find, I do find that it's different at the end of life. I do find that um, in 25 years of accompanying people who are dying, um, it is different. There is something about looking forward. Usually when we look forward, of course, we can't know what's going to happen, but we know some of what's going to happen. We know there's probably coffee in the picture tomorrow morning, right? We know there's a dog that's going to need to be walked. Should the dog still be alive, right? Drink and Melinda, be, you should drink and be well. Um, so we, we kind of know something about what's coming. People at the end of life are looking forward and for the first time have absolutely no idea about anything that's coming. Like what that means, looking forward, what does that, what does that mean? Um, and I find that even people who wouldn't use religious language the way we do in this group, um, people who wouldn't use religious language for that, I, not to impose it on them, but my sense is they are many of them deeply in touch with a larger level of reality, capital R, um, that I call, right, the divine being manifest and present in a different way than when you're busy living your life. When your life is coming to an end and you're looking forward and have no idea what that looks like, um, yes, I find Dana that it's a it's a profoundly different way of seeing, right? And 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 uh, and for some people, um, I, the really lucky ones, they, there is a deep sense of trust, um, and that's kind of I feel like my work as a midwife at that moment is to help birth them into what's next, a realm that we won't get to yet um with a sense of trust and safety and right if we believe in a loving universe then there is nowhere that we can be there is not no state we can be in that is not loving and filled with compassion and right and all of those things so thank you for that susan my my grandpa on his deathbed was reading an astronomy book and I, I said, Grandpa, why do you want to learn about astronomy? And he said, sweetheart, I'm going to be up there, and I need to know where I am. And that was yeah. our very last conversation. Beautiful. Wow. How beautiful. Right? I need a map. He needed I'm, a map. I'm going to be stardust again, and I, I kind of need to know what's happening, where I am. Lovely, Susan. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Lee, I'm going to answer your question. Um, to say that Lee asked, is meditation our way of trying to tap into this? I think meditation is a mindfulness practice, which we do at 1130, everybody. Um, mindfulness practice is our attempt to stop the, the chatter and the distractions of living this human life long enough and deeply enough that we become aware of another level. Right, another layer, if you will, right, that, that's beneath this, right, TV screen of life, right, that there's a, there's something else, right, there's, they tell me anyway, lots of stuff going on behind that keyboard, right, that, that makes it light up and makes all this stuff, you know, and we, we, we drop into our awareness of that, and our, I would say, connection to that, right, because it's not out there, it, capital I, is in here, it is manifest in each of us, right? If we take our tradition seriously, that we are each a Mishkan, we are each, right, a tabernacle, we are each a sanctuary. Um, and at the center, of course, is the a spark of the divine flame that each of us is. And um, we're of that. We are an expression of it, capital I. Um, and we take mindfulness time to really, truly get in touch with that part of ourselves and that reality. Okay. 
Lovely. Okay. So that's, that's our, that's the, the part we're supposed to read. <laughs> um, I want to go back as I, oh, wait, wait, first I want to share with you um, what's his chops, Michael Strasfeld. Okay. You know, my good friend and colleague, Michael Strasfeld. All right. This, you can sign up for his email and get his Torah teaching every week um, if you want. So he says, He's talking about um, the Israelites after experiencing God at Mount Sinai seem uncertain, right? Because God and Moses disappear. They've been gone for a while and people freak out and they make the calf. It's a disaster, he says. In the aftermath of the golden calf, the relationship between God and Jewish people seems shattered, right? So we know about this. Then um, Moshe pleads for God to accompany them on their journey in the desert. We just read that. God agrees and Moses responds, oh, let me behold your kavod. After all that has happened, says Rabbi Strassfeld, it seems odd that Moses asks to be reassured by seeing God. To your point, Judith, wasn't it the mistake of that whole episode to seek reassurance of God's existence by making a way to see God? Like, wasn't that the problem with the calf? They weren't worshiping a different God. They said, let us make a chag to yud heh right? So they weren't worshiping a different God, but they wanted to, to see right in a way that felt familiar to them so why was mo why would moses ask let me see you when that was the whole root of the problem with the people like the israelites we want to feel that god is with us on our journey in response to this request god explains to moshe that a human being cannot see god and live therefore we read the text 33 22 right i will put you in the cleft of the rock what did Moses actually see? God says, I will pass to thee my goodness before you and the grace and compassion that I show. Yes, grace is a Jewish word. Chain is grace. Yeah, I see you laughing, Brenda. So yes, it's a Jewish word. Um, now I lost my place. See, that's what happens when you tease people, Amy. All right. Um, right. Moses doesn't see a being, but rather how God acts in the world with grace and compassion. The essence of God is described by the word tov, goodness. At the end of each day of creation, God says, remember, um, kitov, it is good. It is a moral universe. God is about goodness. Much of the universe is amoral. A plant doesn't choose to act in good or bad ways. Humans do. It is our responsibility to bring more goodness into the world. In the language of the mystics, it is up to humans to redeem the sparks of holiness that are scattered throughout the world. We are the force that makes for redemption. Moses can't see God literally, but can experience God's compassion toward the world and thereby see God. Some commentators suggest that Moses doesn't see God's back, God's achor, but God's achorai. The aftermath of God's passing by. And this is what I love, his, his interpretation. Or more radically, Moses sees the world through God's back. Meaning, Moses sees the world from God's perspective. Moses sees, right, it is as though Moses sees the world through God's eyes. In that moment, Moses sees the world in its vastness and its suffering, in its struggles and its striving and in its love. It is that vision of God's goodness that gives Moses the strength to continue on the journey ahead. Perhaps that moment of vision is the God that will accompany Moses and the Israelites on the long journey ahead. And what I got from this reading, because it took me a minute to, I'm a very visual learner. It was, I was like trying to figure out the image here. And all of a sudden I have this amazing image that what does he mean seeing the world through God's eyes, but on God, I'm like, it's, he's, it's like seeing it's like seeing the world riding on God piggyback, right? Like God passes by and Moshe gets to see the Ahorai, gets to be on God's back, perceiving the world like over God's shoulder, right? Like kind of on piggyback and like seeing the world from God's perspective. That is a beautiful interpretation for me of Ahorai, my, my behind, my back. It's like he's on God's back. He's seeing things from the perspective of God's back, like writing on God's back. And, and that perspective is one by definition of goodness, of compassion. Um, seeing the world that way is what it means to see God 
I just love that. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful interpretation um, of this text. Um, and he also has readings at the end of every Parsha. So I wanted to share um, this one. Um, uh, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lords of our lives, right? So careful, right? What it is that we make the Lords of our lives. And I love this one too. Anxiety is treated by a search for certainty, right? The people are anxious. That's what's happening here. So is Moshe. Anxiety is treated by a search for certainty and certainty, wherever we think we found it will lead to dogma. And wherever we have dogma in time, it leads to rigidity. And that rigidity ultimately leads to idolatry. Boom. Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Hang with me. All right. I'm looking at the clock. Don't worry. Um, Okay. People, I'm so excited about this. Um, So remember, I shared with you some of Ilana Pardes' work on... um, ancient Israel as a character, as a biographical character, and that the weaning experience in the desert was really traumatic for them, right? I told you I have a little more Rahmanis for them this year after looking at it from this perspective, right? That they're yanked out of Egypt where it's the only place they know. It's the only culture that's familiar to them. They're placed in the desert where they don't know how to live. They don't know what's going on. They can't even make their daily meals. They can't like serve their kids pancakes to make them feel better. They can't cook their favorite meal for dinner to make them feel better because there's no food. There's no food in the desert. They're, they're given mana. So they can't even deal with the regular stuff of everyday life that's comforting and familiar. Nothing. The gods that they saw worshipped in Egypt that comforted people when it was drought, you pray to the rain god. When there's you know this, you pray to that one. When someone's sick, you pray to the goddess of healing. Right? It was very comforting to know who to turn to or to, you know, to be in a place where there's a god for everything. All of that is taken away from them, all of it. And so remember, we talked about the weaning in the desert, that they are weaned from food. They don't eat. They're weaned from everything. And it's it's really hard to wean a child because they don't want to be weaned. (laughs) Thank you very much. No one asked me if I want to stop drinking from the breast or the bottle. My daughter didn't want to give up that bottle to like three and a half. It was ridiculous. I'm like, put that thing down. Right. But why? Why should she have to? It was comforting to her. It was familiar for her. She loved it. So why? Like it's, they don't want to give it up. We decide they need to give it up. Um, And this is where the people are when I studied with you about them complaining about not having food and stuff. Okay. But then remember what we talked about. So look down here at the bottom of this left-hand page, the calf I would conjecture is a distorted and displaced image of ISIS. It is a suckling calf that speaks of the absence of a suckling cow, Isis. One should bear in mind was represented at times in the shape of a cow or in human form wearing a cow horn crown. Some scholars assume that the golden calf stands for Apis, the sacred bull of Egyptian religion. But given the fact that what we have here is a calf, not a bull, it is more plausible to see Isis as the primary reference that Moses grinds the golden calf and makes the congregation drink its dust with water reinforces the notion that suckling and weaning are at stake, right? You, you want to suckle from the mother cow? Fine, here, drink it, <laughs> right? Moses tries to wean the nation from its yearnings for idolatrous water by drawing a distinction between pure sources and muddy waters, Um. So and then down here, she talks about um, Moshe in his own infancy being nursed by Yocheved, right? He's taken away from his mother. He's put in the in the Nile. He's separated from his mother and then he's given back to her to nurse. Right. So um, Yocheved's milk loses something of the divine character of Isis's milk, given that she's a mere mortal. But it acquires instead tremendous historical and national value, which is why such an effort is made to preserve it. Right. This is the milk Moshe has to suck in order to become the leader of the Jewish people. I want to go back to this amazing piece about which I never thought about 
where there's a calf, there must have been a cow. That it's the missing cow that is being invoked by the calf. Why? Why isn't the calf the representation of Yodhei Buffet? And what I hear Pardé saying, and I don't know that that this is true. I'm making it up. But I hear her say, because there is no calf god in Egypt. They didn't see a calf god in Egypt. They saw either Ra represented as a bull or they saw Isis, which that representation is the cow. There is no calf god. So where did they get this image? What is the image? And here, this is a big jump on my part. She's not saying this. I want to be clear. She's not saying this. I'm saying this. and I think it's amazing. What I'm, what I got from this. Oh my gosh. Is that what's the real problem with them representing Yudhei Bafe as a calf? They've never even seen a calf as a representation of a God. They've seen a goddess cow and a raw bull. What is the calf? The calf is the suckling, scared, weak Israelites who don't have anybody taking care of them. That's why they build the calf, because they are so anxious that God the Father has left them. And God the Father, by the way, took away God our mother. God, this Yudhe patriarchal whatever, took Isis from us. Took all the all the loving goddess figures that were comforting to us. And now even that God disappears. And this Moses guy, he's gone. What they made was a representation of their abandonment, of their vulnerability and worshiped it. That's the sin. I've never understood this text that way. It is so exciting. Right? What what am I saying? They took their limited, anxious, momentary, freaking outness and covered it in gold and worshipped it. Because don't we? Don't we? Don't we take our momentary perspective? Daddy's gone. Moses is gone. They already killed mommy. And now I'm freaking out trying to be weaned, trying to deal with like my, my being a grown up and trying to handle all this stuff. And in our momentary panic, don't we make it into an idol and worship at its feet? We do. This is what brought us up from Egypt. Our vulnerable, lost, longing, weak, panicky, anxious selves. We worship it. And then we wonder why Moshe and God are so angry because you've heard me agonize about this text for a long time. Why are they so mad? Why is God and Moshe so mad? These people only know from representations that were animals of these gods in Egypt. Why can't they understand that about these people? Why are they so mad? This, this interpretation, now I can understand why they're mad. Look at you people. You take your worst possible instincts, your worst possible moment, your worst assumptions about how the world works, and you turn it into an idol and worship at its feet. It wasn't a cow and it wasn't a bull. It was the suckling, lost, abandoned, orphaned Israel they were worshiping an image of, not Yotei That, my friends, is a powerful message for me this year stop acting like babies right but like i don't know because right now i think i sometimes kind of get caught in this these days i don't know about y'all but i look at the news and i'm like the whole place is going to hell in a handbasket the whole thing democracy it's over it's already over we're just we're just gonna watch it play out we're just watching the death throes it's over the project failed and I don't know that we deserve a democracy, by the way. I don't think we choose very good leaders, look, a few years ago, right? So I'm not sure it's the greatest system for human beings who don't take it seriously enough. I really don't. So like, like, and then boom, before I know it, it's an idol at whose feet I'm worshiping. I've accepted it as reality. I've accepted my own anxious projections as reality, capital R. That is idolatry, is what this text, is what the jump from it being a calf, Israelite anxiety as reality. That's the idolatrous move 
that is so incredibly dangerous when we get caught in it and when we get stuck in it. And for me, it blew this text wide open in a different way. And it calls me out as an idolater, (laughs) right? Um, You know, assuming that my own worst instincts about the world, my own worst impressions of humanity right now, that, that that's the, the that's the sum total of this business says who says this ancient Israelite who, who doesn't have leeks and onions and garlic to cook with every day anymore. Right. Who's had things torn away that feel familiar and comforting because it's time to be a grown up. And first of all, adulting is the worst job in the world. I don't know how anybody else here feels, but it's the worst job in the world. Right. And Melinda, it's the worst um, <laughs> and so, I mean, adulting in this time is like, it's really, really hard and really hard for those of us who are not designed like other people, <laughs> like those of us who are ADD or who, whatever our thing is, right. That, um, it's just focusing on bills and how to get a car fixed. and like, what? Like, there's so much to do. That's like, was super hard to figure out. Then go to the next level. What does it mean to be a human being in the world and be self-reliant and be a grown-up in terms of maturity and responsibility and and being there for other people and having to show up for them when we don't want to because we're too tired or we're too self-involved or I just want to watch Netflix. So what what on every level? I mean, this is about taking our worst moments, our worst way of understanding things, our anxiety about how we experience life and projecting that out as that's reality. That's, that's what's true and worshiping at its feet. And I think it's an absolutely brilliant text for me this year, looking at it that way. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org